The winds howled over a light dusting of snow along the tracks at a New Jersey train station. It was around 10 p.m. on a frigid November night in 1910. Passengers rushed from the platform to the rickety wooden train car, hoping for a bit of refuge from the cold. But at the far end of the platform, hardly anyone noticed the elegant black train car. It had beautiful polished brass handrails and intricate filigrees. While the rest of the meager boxcars were marked by Roman numerals, this car's plaque sported its owner's name, Aldrich. Within moments, Rhode Island senator and multimillionaire Nelson Aldrich approached his car. Unlike the other passengers, he was unbothered by the cold, bundled in a fur-collared coat and elegant top hat. His secretary scuttled behind him, hauling an assortment of baggage while trying to keep pace. Aldrich wasn't the only one who arrived dressed to the nines. Over the next 20 minutes, one wealthy man after the next climbed aboard. Every so often, a passerby stopped to stare at the bourgeois clown car, the smell of cigars wafting from the windows. After the final man arrived, the conductor gave his formal all aboard, and the train chugged away from the station. Aldrich's private car held six of the wealthiest men on the planet. Together, they traveled over 800 miles south to a location off the coast of Georgia called Jekyll Island. Officially, they were on a duck hunting trip. Unofficially, one of the most important discussions in American history was about to take place. They were drafting plans for a brand new central banking system known today as the Federal Reserve. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a ParCast original. As you've probably noticed, this is our first episode on a Monday. From here on out, we'll release episodes twice a week on Mondays and our usual Wednesdays. Otherwise, our show will remain the same. Every week, we'll dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Molly Brandenburg. And I'm Carter Roy. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Conspiracy Theories for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Conspiracy Theories in the search bar. This is our first episode on the Federal Reserve. Officially established in 1913, the Fed became the central bank for the United States and still functions as such today. The Federal Reserve is completely autonomous from the United States government, but regulates our nation's wealth by changing interest rates and adding or removing money from circulation. This week, we'll explore the official history of the Federal Reserve. We'll talk about the nation's numerous failed attempts at a centralized bank until a meeting at Jekyll Island created a more stable yet flexible monetary system. Once established, the Federal Reserve shaped the U.S. economy through World War I and the Great Depression, 
and became one of the most powerful organizations in the United States today. Next week, we'll explore a few conspiracy theories about the Fed. The Federal Reserve may have deliberately caused the Great Depression to enrich itself, or they might have ordered President John F. Kennedy's assassination after he signed an executive order that threatened their existence. And finally, the Fed may be a tool for the new world order, a totalitarian global government that's rising to power right under our noses. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. This year has gone by so quickly. So much has happened. I mean, I have already completely reconstructed the plumbing in my house. Luckily, not myself. I had help. And you know, with everything going on in life, sometimes it's important to slow down. Take a minute to reflect and make adjustments for the rest of the year ahead. And if you need a little help with that, therapy is an excellent option. I have loved therapy so much, in part because of the coping mechanisms it's given me. It's not just a place to share my feelings about my life or what's going on. I've learned ways to address my own mental habits so that I can handle what I'm doing even better. I've learned that self-care is not selfish, and it's really made a big difference in my life. If you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, and all you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get started. Plus, you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. So take a moment for yourself. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot conspiracy. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Before the existence of the Federal Reserve, thousands of independent American banks were run either by a state, a municipality, or private business owners. But these banks didn't have anything to fall back on when a crisis struck. Imagine that banks are a fishing farm. Each farm has a certain amount of fish. When times are good, the fish thrive and reproduce, making the farms wealthy. But if the environment is poor, the fish die off. The farmer could buy fish from another farm, but if they're struggling too, they may be unwilling to sell. Over time, all the farmers are left with no fish at all. But a central pond, or in this case, a central bank, like the Federal Reserve, can help these smaller businesses as a lender of last resort. Essentially, the Federal Reserve was a bank exclusively for other banks or depository institutions, like credit unions or loan associations. 
The banks we typically use, like Chase or Bank of America, serve people. The Federal Reserve provides the same services, like loans and lines of credit, to the banks. But the Fed has a few other responsibilities, like keeping the United States economy healthy and the monetary system stable. That's partially accomplished by keeping interest and inflation rates low. Interest is the amount of money you have to pay back on a loan so that the lender can benefit from the deal. So if the Fed was a central pond, they would be responsible for keeping the fish pond healthy, enough so that the fish could repopulate on their own. And they would keep the farmers happy by charging them very little for new fish when the time came to get more. Meanwhile, inflation is an increase in the general prices of goods and services. If you've ever heard your grandparents tell you that a carton of milk used to cost a nickel, they're referring to inflation. And when inflation occurs, the value of your money decreases. Let's look at another example. Imagine you go to Starbucks to buy a coffee. Today, the coffee costs $3. But tomorrow, when you return, that coffee will be $3.06. That's a product of inflation. And your dollar has lost value. It's not getting you the same thing today that it could yesterday. This is where the Federal Reserve comes in. Their job is to adjust the supply of cash to the public. Because if money is too tight or hard to get, people are less likely to spend it. And if there's no money going into the economy, the whole system can be thrown off balance. To keep cash flowing, the Federal Reserve has the power to create money out of thin air. And with today's technology, most of that money is digital, meaning they don't have to print more paper dollars or put them into circulation. They simply buy bonds and securities with digital funds that are newly created and deposited directly to the banks. Up until the 1930s, money printed in the United States had to be backed by something called the gold standard. This meant that every time the mint printed a new dollar, they guaranteed a dollar's worth of gold in their coffers to give it value. Between 1944 and 1971, the international exchange rate for one ounce of gold was equal to 35 U.S. dollars. But the gold standard was replaced all over the world by something called fiat money. That's currency backed by government order. The value of fiat money is based on supply and demand and the stability of the issuing government. So if a nation's economy is doing poorly, the value of their dollar also decreases. Now, one final thing to understand is that the Federal Reserve works independently from the government. While members of the Federal Reserve Board are nominated by the president and confirmed by the Senate, its decisions don't need approval from the president or any other executive or legislative branches. But this wasn't always the case. Ever since the nation's very first bank was established, people have argued whether or not the government should have more control. The United States opened its first central bank in 1782, just before the end of the revolution. It was time for the American people to strengthen their currency in anticipation of their freedom. The Bank of North America was established by a congressman named Robert Morris. Morris happened to be a wealthy merchant who was hungry to turn a profit wherever he saw fit. He'd controlled the finances of the Continental Army during the war, diverting some funds to his friends and his own accounts. 
Now that this venture was coming to an end, Morris saw the bank as a means to fund a new government, and perhaps he could line his own pockets at the same time. This system was closely modeled off the Bank of England, which used the fractional reserve model. Fractional reserve allows banks to profit by loaning money that's deposited by other customers. That means the bank only has a small amount of cash on hand for withdrawal at any time. Here's an example. Mark deposits $100. An hour later, Julia comes to withdraw $75. The bank gives her the same cash Mark just deposited, keeping the other $25 in their reserve for the next client. Of course, this could create a problem if Mark comes back to withdraw his original $100. But banks have hundreds or thousands of customers, so for the most part, someone always has some cash on deposit. If this seems familiar, that's because it's the same model our banks use today. Starting with only $400,000, Morris was able to multiply the bank's reserves and establish lines of credit throughout the growing nation. However, the Bank of North America's status as the only bank in the nation wouldn't last long. In 1787, four years after the end of the Revolutionary War, the seeds of a new bank were sown. At the Constitutional Convention, the Founding Fathers drafted the nation's fundamental laws and basic rights for their citizens. They also gave Congress the power to borrow and coin money while regulating its value. But Congress didn't explicitly have the authority to print paper money for circulation. Men like George Washington and James Madison strongly supported this clause. They believed paper bills had no intrinsic value and that money should be created out of something of worth, like gold or silver coins. Washington had written a letter that same year claiming, paper money has had the effect in your state that it will ever have to ruin commerce, oppress the honest, and open the door to every species of fraud and injustice. But the Secretary of Treasury, Alexander Hamilton, didn't agree. He believed paper money could hold its value the same way coins did. But the only way to prove that was by printing cash and using it in the real world. To do that, he needed to sidestep the Constitution. In December 1790, Hamilton submitted his proposal for a new national bank to Congress. The institution could issue paper cash, safely store public funds, and take over the government's financial duties, like paying back war debts. And since it would all be done outside of the federal government, it wasn't technically unconstitutional. His model wasn't too far off from the Bank of North America's. In fact, Hamilton was a former colleague of Robert Morris, and some believe that he was working to keep Morris's agenda alive. Theoretically, the further the banks stayed from political control and the less the public understood about their inner workings, the easier they'd be to profit from. Except Thomas Jefferson saw right through Hamilton's plan. He argued that because Congress couldn't print money, they also shouldn't create their own bank. The heated debate lasted months. The issue played a part in creating the country's first political parties. Hamilton led the Federalists, who advocated for a strong centralized government and commercial growth. Jefferson became the face of the Anti-Federalists, 
who supported states' rights and believed the Constitution should limit the federal government's power. Ultimately, Hamilton's party won out, and Congress issued a 20-year charter to the First Bank of the United States. Hamilton handpicked the bank's new president, Thomas Willing, a merchant who had benefited from Morris's corrupt dealings during the Revolutionary War. The First Bank acted as the nation's fiscal agent, securing incoming loans and paying its bills. The U.S. government became the largest shareholder in the biggest corporation in America. And while it didn't manage the bank directly, it collected a portion of its profits and inspected the books from time to time. Of course, the government flourished when the First Bank did well, so they didn't have much incentive to blow the whistle if they ever found something amiss. Unlike the Federal Reserve, the First Bank offered loans to private citizens and businesses. It printed its own banknotes, backed by gold reserves. With those notes in circulation, the U.S. dollar became more powerful. In 1811, the charter went up for renewal. But Alexander Hamilton wasn't alive to defend the bank's honor anymore. The pro-bank Federalists no longer had congressional power. At the end of January, the House voted on whether or not to renew the charter. It came down to a tie-breaking vote, and the First Bank of the United States lost. It was subsequently dissolved. Another attempt was made with the Second Bank of the United States in 1816, but it didn't have the support of the newly elected president, Andrew Jackson. So the Second Bank met the same fate as its predecessor and was also dissolved. For the next 75 years, the United States thrived with only private or state-owned banks. That is, until 1907, when the New York Stock Exchange fell almost 50% and panic spread throughout the nation. Millions of dollars had disappeared overnight. Coming up, the Panic of 1907 triggers a top-secret meeting of the world's wealthiest men. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. And now, back to the story. Today, the Federal Reserve controls the United States' interest rates and the amount of money in circulation. But it's not an age-old institution. The U.S. government's first three attempts at a centralized banking system failed. So in the early 1800s, they left it up to the states and privately owned institutions to manage America's money. But the system proved too weak in the face of a crisis. 
In April 1906, a 7.9 magnitude earthquake hit San Francisco, causing massive devastation not just to the city, but to the entire U.S. economy. Bridges, roads, and buildings were destroyed. Insurance companies went bankrupt in an effort to fulfill their claims. But many property owners didn't have insurance and couldn't afford to rebuild or move. The stock market plummeted as investors were forced to sell off shares in an effort to repay their debts. People started to worry about the banking system's stability and decided they'd rather hold on to their cash than let the banks do it for them. The country entered a recession as more people refused to spend their money. In October 1907, a Wall Street panic made the recession even worse. Otto and Augustus Hines, copper moguls, tried to corner the market by taking full control of their company's stock. The brothers bought as many United Copper shares as they could and drove the prices up. Except, Otto completely misread the market projections. Two days after he purchased the stock, his very expensive shares plummeted even lower than the original rates. The Wall Street Journal reported on the drop, which triggered a nationwide panic. Clients made a run on the banks, meaning they withdrew their money from every institution rumored to be involved with the Heinz family. Many state and local banks declared bankruptcy, leaving thousands of their customers unable to access their funds. It quickly became apparent that the independent banks didn't have the infrastructure to weather an economic crisis. Luckily, one American banker was ready to rally the troops and clean up the mess. In October 1907, John Pierpoint Morgan, better known today as J.P. Morgan, invited a group of bankers over to his New York mansion. He asked that they flood their capital into the banking system to keep the economy afloat until the panic subsided. Essentially, J.P. Morgan's private bank saved the U.S. government a lot of money by bailing out the banks so they didn't have to. But Morgan and his friends would soon call in the favor. J.P. Morgan didn't board Aldrich's train car that November in 1910, but he was well represented. The roster of cigar-smoking men included Benjamin Strong, head of J.P. Morgan's Bankers Trust Company, and Henry P. Davison, senior partner at J.P. Morgan. Sipping scotch alongside him were A. Hyatt Andrew, economist and assistant secretary of the Treasury. Paul Warburg, partner at a New York investment firm called Kuhn, Loeb & Company. Frank A. Vanderlip, president of the National City Bank, representing William Rockefeller. And of course, Nelson Aldrich, Senate chairman of the National Monetary Commission, a study group responsible for reporting any changes to the American currency or banking system to Congress. But Aldrich knew that the commission was mostly just for show. The country needed a stronger monetary agency to avoid future panics, which was why he'd brought these men together. They traveled 800 miles south to Jekyll Island. There, they'd spend nine days at a private hunting resort exclusive to the nation's wealthiest. As soon as Aldrich's extravagant train car pulled into the Brunswick station in Georgia, news of their arrival spread. The men were waiting for their boat at the local dock when reporters arrived, spitting questions. 
Henry Davison told the journalist that he was simply entertaining a few guests. They'd come for a week-long duck hunt. And the press bought it. Soon, the reporters dispersed, and Aldrich and his friends had privacy again. From that point on, their meeting was shrouded in secrecy. For the duration of their stay at the Island Lodge, the men only referred to each other by their first names. They dismissed their full-time staff in favor of new employees who didn't know their identities. So, no, this wasn't an ordinary duck hunting trip. It was an effort to establish the most powerful banking structure the world had ever seen. The men spent their days drinking expensive scotch, eating caviar, and devising a plan to tackle some of the issues they collectively faced. They'd been business rivals before, but now they needed to combine their powers and take back control. First, they had to stop the growing influence of smaller rival banks. Even these wealthy elites felt the competition getting stiff in the banking world. After the market crash, there were almost 20,000 privately owned lending institutions across the nation. They cut into the big bank's market share and made it harder to make money off of interest or loans. Another problem was that American banks didn't have a lender of last resort, meaning there was no one to fall back on. Although it had failed before, the United States really needed a central bank, one that could create as much money as needed to help banks that were at risk of going under. And to accomplish that, they needed to make money more elastic, which meant that its value could be inflated or deflated quickly, according to commercial demand. They also needed to pool the nation's funds into a large centralized reserve. Then they could be the ones to dictate who got how much. Most of the men involved in the Jekyll Island meeting were experienced bankers, and they all knew the rules of the game. Investor Paul Warburg had already advocated for a centralized bank for years. He'd published several pamphlets that were popular in financial and academic circles, so he became the Jekyll Island Plan's mastermind. Warburg had long argued that American currency had been handicapped by its dependence on government bonds and gold. He believed that one day the world would come off this system. Now was the time to institute elastic fiat money to keep up with the nation's volatile economy. In other words, the men at Jekyll Island were about to convince the government that they should create money out of nothing and then lend it back to its citizens. Incidentally, the plan gave these men full control over the majority of banks in the United States. All they had to do was convince Congress that this plan wasn't self-serving. It would protect the nation. And before they could get the government on board, they'd have to convince the American people that this was in their best interest as well. The Jekyll Island team got to work as soon as they left their nine-day retreat. They hired university professors to academically approve the plan they were about to bring to Congress. To sweeten the deal, the banks donated $5 million, around $135 million today, to universities like Princeton and Harvard. Out of these educational funds came the National Citizens League, whose motto was a movement for a sound banking system. 
The organization distributed thousands of educational pamphlets and organized letter-writing campaigns to local congressmen. This faux grassroots movement quickly gained traction with American citizens, but one powerful congressman was prepared to stonewall the agenda. William Jennings Bryan was one of the most popular congressional Democrats, serving in Woodrow Wilson's cabinet as Secretary of State. He was well-spoken and a champion of liberal causes like prohibition, raising income tax on the wealthy, supporting women's suffrage, and creating the Department of Labor. Bryan's powerful influence over Congress made one thing very clear. The Jekyll Island plan wouldn't pass without his consent. And he certainly wasn't about to support a bill that allowed private banks to issue their own money. So when the proposed Federal Reserve Act reached his desk in 1913, Bryan refused to accept it as written. Instead, he opened negotiations with the bankers. Bryan insisted that cash had to be printed by the Treasury. The Federal Reserve shouldn't have the power to do this on their own. And the governing body of the Federal Reserve needed to be appointed by the president and approved by the Senate. That way, the public was protected by a system of checks and balances. This would be a risky experiment for the United States government, who'd seen banks like this fail in the past. But the difference was that now, the state and the banks would publicly combine their expertise and share their power, which hadn't been done before. In late 1913, both parties reached an agreement. And with Bryan's approval, it was far easier to convince the House and the Senate to ratify the Federal Reserve Act. Just three days before Christmas, the House quickly passed the final bill with a vote of 298 to 60. The Senate passed it 43 to 25, and it was signed into law by President Woodrow Wilson the very next day on December 23, 1913. The Federal Reserve was in business. Coming up, the Federal Reserve pulls the strings of the American economy. Hi, I'm Avantika Chilkoti, host of The Modi Raj, a new podcast from The Economist. Narendra Modi has watched over a period of rapid growth in India, but he's also the front man for a chauvinistic Hindu nationalism. Now, he's eyeing another term as prime minister. What will it mean for India and the world? I've been trying to get inside his head. Listen now to The Modi Raj from The Economist, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by the Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 platinum jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. And now back to the story. In 1910, a group of wealthy bankers met on Jekyll Island to discuss their plans for a centralized bank. Three years later, that plan became a reality when the Federal Reserve Act was passed and signed by President Woodrow Wilson. 
But come August of 1914, the United States' economic climate completely changed. World War I began, and although America hadn't joined the fight yet, economic panic was still setting in. As for the Fed, they had only been founded nine months before, and it wasn't quite operational yet. Their 12 branches wouldn't open until November 1914, and rushing wasn't an option. They were in new, uncharted territory, especially because the start of the war triggered another run on the banks. But the panic only lasted for a few months. By the end of the year, a large influx of European gold came into the United States to pay for exports. The Federal Reserve gathered that gold and stored it in their own private vaults. As a result, the nation's reserves inflated drastically. The Federal Reserve didn't quite know how to address that. In addition, European financial markets had slowed and stalled. And since the United States was in good financial standing, many foreign entities came to America to ask for loans and other financial needs. This strengthened the U.S. dollar and made it one of the world's leading currencies. When the United States finally entered the war in 1917, the government needed extra money for the troops. The Federal Reserve did their part by keeping interest rates low so the government could borrow at a lower cost. They also sold liberty bonds to citizens to raise money for the war effort. The United States came out on the other side of World War I with one of the world's most prosperous economies. When the other nations started to pay back their wartime debts, the Federal Reserve amassed more gold than ever before. The Fed had the luxury of offering citizens low-interest loans while inflation soared. The Federal Reserve had passed the ultimate test. It had proven itself as a necessary resource that could properly function as a centralized bank. After the war, it did its best to bring down inflation. But it was too late. In the late 1920s, the nation went into an economic recession. In 1929, the United States had one of the most catastrophic economic disasters in global history, the Great Depression. Today, historians and economists have no concrete answer as to what ultimately caused the Great Depression. Some claim it was the stock market crash of 1929. Others blame it on decreased international lending and on tariffs, a tax placed on imports and exports. But it was more devastating than anyone could have predicted. Thousands of banks shuttered. Industrial production hit rock bottom. Unemployment rates skyrocketed to 25%, and millions starved. The Great Depression made the Panic of 1907 look like a cakewalk. In the 1930s, the nation hit its breaking point when the commercial banking system collapsed entirely. That's because only 8,000 commercial banks belonged to the Federal Reserve System. There were still around 16,000 that did not and had no lender of last resort. While the banks inside the Federal Reserve System weren't hit nearly as hard, much of America had their money in those 16,000 other banks on the outside. The Fed Board's members differed on how to handle the crisis. Some believed aid should only be given to banks that were part of the system. Others argued that they should offer assistance to banks on the outside, or at least help their customers. The 12 branches were all involved in the final decision, but ultimately couldn't reach a consensus. 
Meanwhile, the Federal Reserve Board, or the governing body of the Fed, didn't have the power to dictate nationwide policy. Lawmakers, bankers, and civilians all became frustrated. It appeared that the Federal Reserve was sitting idly by while the country descended into economic ruin. Ultimately, Congress decided to resolve the issue themselves. They passed the Banking Act of 1933, which expanded the president's authority during major banking crises and gave the Federal Reserve the flexibility to issue emergency funds. Later in 1933, Roosevelt decided to take the U.S. off of the gold standard. He ordered all gold coins and certificates worth over $100 to be turned into the Fed in exchange for paper money. Citizens would get $20.67 per ounce of gold, which equates to a little over $400 today. The only exception was other foreign nations were allowed to exchange their U.S. dollars with America for gold. The following year, the government inflated that rate to $35 an ounce, a little under $700 today. This meant that the Federal Reserve, who held the gold, suddenly had 69% more money in their pocket. And more money meant more inflation. In the 1970s, the Nixon administration completely severed any remaining connection between the U.S. dollar and the gold standard meaning the final clause of allowing other nations to exchange would now cease. Six decades after the Jekyll Island meeting, fiat money finally became a reality. Things ebbed and flowed for the Fed until August 11, 1987, when economist Alan Greenspan became the chairman of the Federal Reserve. Two months later, he weathered another catastrophic economic crisis, the stock market crash of 87. Greenspan advocated for interest rate cuts to prevent another Great Depression. In fact, Greenspan was so laser-focused that he received criticism for controlling prices and keeping inflation down rather than jacking up prices to boost employment. Basically, he took money from companies and put it in consumers' hands rather than enriching business owners to create jobs. Greenspan continued to push for low interest rates through the dot-com bubble burst and the 9-11 attacks. Many credit Greenspan for the longest economic expansion the United States has ever seen. But after 18 years, Greenspan left the job in 2005. And while the Fed was extremely successful up to that point, the 2008 recession brought new criticism. Author and Congressman Ron Paul published his book, End the Fed, to shed light on what he considered a dangerous and corrupt institution. Paul claimed that not only was the Federal Reserve unethical, it was unconstitutional. Congress didn't actually have the right to establish a centralized bank or create paper money, and the Federal Reserve was an institution designed to sidestep these measures through semantics. Paul argued... In the post-meltdown world, it is irresponsible, ineffective, and ultimately useless to have a serious economic debate without considering and challenging the role of the Federal Reserve. Ultimately, Paul's In the Fed movement helped increase national skepticism toward the Federal Reserve. Because of its unique position, straddling the line between public and private, the Fed can keep its inner workings close to the chest and this elusive nature has inspired many conspiracy theories. 
Like conspiracy theory number one, the Federal Reserve didn't just sit idly by during the Great Depression, they actually caused it so its founders could enrich themselves at the public's expense. Conspiracy theory number two, the Federal Reserve ordered the assassination of President John F. Kennedy in 1963. After JFK signed an executive order handing over more power to the Treasury, the Fed may have collaborated with the CIA to kill the 35th president. And conspiracy theory number three, the Federal Reserve is a cog in the New World Order who may be using the organization for global domination. The Federal Reserve is one of the least understood organizations in our country. We don't know exactly what its goals are because it operates in the shadows. Sans federal regulation, they control the most dangerous weapon known to mankind, our money. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back Wednesday for part two on the conspiracy theories surrounding the Federal Reserve. For more information on the Fed, we found The Creature from Jekyll Island by G. Edward Griffin and The Power and Independence of the Federal Reserve by Peter Conti Brown, helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Conspiracy Theories, for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Conspiracy Theories on Spotify, just open the app and type Conspiracy Theories in the search bar. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Mike Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Lori Gottlieb, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. Conspiracy Theories.